1: Three unions join to help organize 45,000 workers at Delta. Meanwhile, firefighters and first responders in Virginia vote to join the union. And today, on the show, the operating engineers in the upper Midwest and the latest from the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO. Welcome to the Monday, November 28th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least six platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and stitcher. We have two guests on the show today. We're going to start things off with Jason George. Jason is the business manager of the Operating Engineers that would be a local 49, local49.org is their website. This is a local that was formed back in 1927, and they have carried on a very proud tradition of fighting for the rights of workers in Minnesota, North Dakota, and South Dakota. Operating engineers represent heavy equipment operators, mechanics, and station engineers that work in the following industries, road, highway, bridge construction, a lot of that going on in that area, housing developments, building construction, river dredging, port work, oil and natural gas pipeline construction and maintenance, fiber optic work, mining that includes iron ore, silica sand precious metals, logging, sand and gravel pits, asphalt, concrete plants, wind and solar construction, including maintenance, coal, nuclear, natural gas-powered plants, drilling, equipment rental, maintenance shops, city, county, school district, and township construction and maintenance, and water and wastewater plant operators in the Metropolitan Council, and other locations in that area. The uh, local, Local 49, is part of the 400,000-member strong International Union of Operating Engineers. And Jason has uh, quite a history. He says he's very proud and humbled to be the business manager at Local 49. And listen to his uh, background. Growing up, Jason was raised by a single mom in the St. Paul area, Watch my mother work two jobs to keep a roof over our head and struggle to keep us afloat. I learned what it's like to be one missed paycheck, one flat tire, one illness away from life unraveling. The life experiences I had as a kid shape who I am today, and they shape the kind of leader I want to be. I eventually made it to the University of Minnesota, where I studied political science, but did not compare. It did not compare to the education I got growing up. Boy, I tell you, he is spot on when he said that. Comes from the School of Hard Knocks. And his uncle, by the way, was president of the Amalgamated Transit Union. That would be local 1005 in Minnesota. And it was his uncle that taught him everything. That he knows about what it means to represent working class people. We'll talk about that and more with Jason. Obviously, the work, his philosophy, growing the union, future growth industries, and the opportunities—and there are many—that are out there right now. Greg Regan will be joining us later in the show on behalf of the Transportation and Trades Department of the AFL-CIO, longtime contributor to the show, and we're going to talk about their uh, 2023 agenda. They uh, they had a meeting. This was the uh, biannual board meeting called the Executive Committee meeting on Thursday. This was a couple of weeks ago, November 10th. And they have uh, 37 affiliated unions in the Transportation and Trades Department. Their website, real simple, TTD.org. You can see what they do, who they represent. And um, the labor leaders at the meeting pretty much ratified their agenda. The policy is focused on wage increases benefits, domestic manufacturing, and the overall improvement of working conditions for transportation workers. Greg came out of that meeting saying the Biden administration has delivered on its promise to invest in infrastructure, create good middle-class jobs, and put workers first. And our federation will continue to work with this administration and the new Congress to advance policies that improve what I just said, wages, benefits, working conditions for all the people that are part of the Transportation Trades Department. Now, the concern, of course, is the House. The House is going to the GOP. Now, Greg has a history of working on both sides of the aisle, and we'll find out how he feels about this new Congress. And if it's bad legislation, I can tell you this, it will not survive in the Senate which means kind of a gridlock. The other issue, too, is the rail industry. We hit this pretty hard last week on the show because we could, we could see a strike maybe in the next week to 10 days. And at that meeting that I just referenced with Greg Regan, there was discussion of a proposal that Congress require federal regulators to conduct an annual stress test that would determine whether The class one railroads have enough people, equipment, and infrastructure capacity to meet freight demand. Now, the big issue, the big issue is stress, fatigue. The fact that if you need to make a doctor's appointment because you don't feel good, you could get docked. You could get docked your pay because they are in such a tight work schedule. And the rail industry lost a lot of people over the last couple of years. My gosh, right now, I want to say they're probably down about 40,000. Because about 45,000 left. They only hired about 4,000 more. Now, that may have increased. We'll find out with Greg when he joins us here on the show on America's Workforce. Now, brief look into the world of labor. This segment brought to you by the good folks. At Boyd Waterson, asset management. You could find more at BoydWatterson.com. The Association of Flight Attendants, which is part of the Communication Workers of America, along with the machinists and the Teamsters, all together announced a coordinated campaign to support the employees of Delta Airlines who are working to organize their unions. Delta is the only United States base mainline carrier, whose flight attendants, fleet service, and mechanics are not represented by a union. Comment here from Sarah Nelson. Sarah is the international president of the AFA. She said Delta flight attendants are the heart of the airline, and key to its industry-leading success. They deserve a union contract that leads the industry too. Together. Workers will lock in what they love about their work at Delta and gain the respect that comes with a union contract. Richie Johnson is with the Machinist Air Transport, and he is a general vice president for the transport territory. He said Delta fleet service workers deliver for both customers and the carrier. Now the time has come to deliver an industry-leading contract for the people who truly make Delta Airlines a world-class airline. He goes on to say, we're so excited. To join with the AFA and the Teamsters to bring Delta workers a greater voice on the job. We're talking 45,000 workers here. This could be really, really big. And Delta, oh my God, this is one airline that has a long history, a long history of fighting the union. But things have changed. We'll see what happens here. More than 1,000 firefighters and paramedics. This is in Fairfax County, Virginia voted 95% in favor of forming a union with the International Association of Firefighters. They are the newest group of public service workers to organize a union in the county in northern Virginia after a new state law allowed municipalities across the Commonwealth to permit collective bargaining with their employees. Organizers cite the need to fix excessive mandatory overtime as one of the key reasons for their victory. Robert Young is the head of Local 2068 there of the International Association of Firefighters, and he said, this win puts us in a position to ensure we are providing the best services to the members of our community. As the number of in-person gatherings rebounds, convention center workers warn of... Looming labor disputes over, what else, but stagnant wages and poor working conditions. Well, last week, members of Unite Here gathered for a press conference to announce that Sodexco workers in Orlando, Florida, and Las Vegas plan to authorize strikes against their employer. There could be other labor disputes at convention centers in New Orleans, Sacramento, California, as well as Detroit. One of the uh, organizers, Jacqueline Ponce, said, I support a strike because I need more money in my pocket to pay my bills when the cost of life has gone up so much. I struggle with food, with rent, and gas, with the money I make. Jacqueline makes $13.60 an hour. That's it. She says, at our convention center is one of the biggest in the country. My coworkers and I are ready to do what it takes to win the contract that we need. She works in uh, Orlando at the uh, Orange County Convention Center. That's a big facility there. $13.60 an hour. That's it. And I want to do a shout-out here for the uh, members of the Writers Guild of America East. I talked about this briefly last week. The Hearst Union which is notoriously, Horst the publisher, notoriously anti-union. Well, the union is organized with the Writers Guild of America East, and they have been working tirelessly to bargain for a first contract. So what they're doing, and this is happening today in New York City. You know, today is uh, Cyber Monday. You got a lot of, sh- I mean, New York, uh, let's be honest here. New York City is like the shopping capital of the world. So there's a lot of people, and they're standing Outside, members of their bargaining unit, they have about 500 members. They're fighting for fair wages and fair benefits. Hearst, by the way, currently pays its employees below industry standard rates. January of next year will mark two years of bargaining at Hearst. And they haven't gotten anywhere. And they want respect that every union member deserves. Time and time again, Hearst has blatantly bucked its legal obligation to notify and bargain with the union over layoffs and terminations, so the union has filed a number of uh, unfair labor practice charges. And uh, you could follow them, too, at, uh, let's see, Hearst-Rally. Just go to there, Hearst-Rally, Writers Guild of America East. You can Google them and find some more information and support the workers there. It's happening in downtown New York City. As we speak. All right, quick break. When we come back, we're going to link up with Jason George on behalf of the operating engineers, Local 49. This is America's
0: Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com.
2: It takes Layuna to build North America's infrastructure.
0: This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit SurveyandBallotSystems.com to learn more.
1: The United Steelworkers of America represent over 70,000 workers in the state of Ohio. Steelworker members enjoy the benefits of some of the best contracts of any workers in the world. Many of your friends, neighbors, and relatives are members of one of the most effective democratic unions in our country. With the pressures unorganized workers are under in today's economy, you need to join them. So call the Steelworkers Organizing Office at 216-292-5683 or toll free at 1-800-443-3752. The AFL-CIO is a proud sponsor of America's Workforce Radio.
0: United by efforts to raise wages, listeners to this show and workers all across America are beginning to turn a corner and drive the economic debate. The AFL-CIO is comprised of 12.5 million working people, but we stand with and fight for everyone who is working for a better life. For more information about our raising wages
1: agenda, go to aflcio.org.
0: Now, Back to Ed Flash Farrance with America's Workforce.
1: And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast, AWF Union Podcast. You know, with all the problems of Twitter, there's a couple of other platforms you might consider using. The AFL-CIO sent an email out a couple of weeks ago saying, Hey, you know, there's TikTok, there's Reddit, there's Mastodon, and of course Instagram. You might want to use those until... uh, Elon Musk gets his house in order, if that ever happens. I mean, they lost at least half the employees there. $44 billion debacle. That's how I look at that one. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency, ULAgency.org. Let's go to uh, St. Paul, Minnesota right now. And welcome back to the show. We had this gentleman on some while ago. We always like to check in frequently with our brothers and sisters around the country. And this is Jason George on line number one. Jason is a business manager of the International Union of Operating Engineers. That would be Local 49, website real simple, local49.org. Jason, George, welcome back to America's Workforce. How are we doing today, especially after this Thanksgiving holiday week? Did you get enough turkey over the weekend?
3: Plenty of turkey, uh, Vikings victory, and it's great to be here.
1: (laughs) That was a good win. That was a really good win. Three games on Thanksgiving Day. That was the uh, the last one, and uh, yeah, my son-in-law is a big Vikings fan, so good for you. Let's talk a little bit about Local Forty Nine. How many members do we have
3: right now, Jason? Uh, we are we just crossed fourteen thousand six hundred members, uh, which is the the all time high for us in our union's history. Uh, we were formed in nineteen twenty seven, so uh, we've added, I think, about. 1800 in the last three years so we're we're doing well
1: well let's talk about that i know there's a lot of organizing going on and you uh, by the way your local covers three states minnesota north and south dakota did we see a pickup in organizing in all three states what's the story there
3: yeah we have it's most of mostly in minnesota that's a bulk of our membership and that's where the bulk of the growth is but we have had some success in north dakota in particular south dakota is a little bit more of a struggle Um, but we are making some efforts in the dakotas more than we have and sioux falls in particular is a a rapidly growing city in south dakota we're doing some market studies and you know seeing seeing where our package is at compared to what what uh, the non-union contractors are paying and what we can do there and going to be start getting more aggressive there as well. So I I look at the Dakotas, Minnesota is largely for our trade, Uh, not all trades, but for our trade, uh, we have really, really good market share on the construction side. And we have a really dense population of public sector employees too in cities and counties, public works people. So Minnesota, uh, there's still opportunities in Minnesota and we're, we're growing there, but, the Dakotas is an area that I look at as growth potential.
1: Yeah. Now, w- when you talk about the Dakotas, and I've had this conversation with uh, various other unions, I mean, we're, we're talking—they're—they're they're not what you call really union-friendly states. I, I know they're right-to-work states. They—they they don't have the population that Minnesota has. So, uh, it sounds like you're going to put some resources in there to turn that around. Is—is is that what I'm hearing?
3: That's right. They're both uh, very non-union states. They're very unfriendly. They were two, two of the first states to go right to work when that law became available uh, to states. Uh, they were two of the first to jump on it, and they have a long history of really hating unions. Um, so it's there's a lot to overcome. But, yeah, there's there's some growth there in, in Fargo in North Dakota and in Sioux Falls in South Dakota are two of the fastest-growing cities in America. They're, just, they're booming and a lot of buildings going on. We're getting some of the work um, in our trade but uh, there's definitely a, a ton of potential there mm-hmm. for us and um, we're going to put some resources into it for sure
1: L- let's talk about those two cities Sioux Falls and Fargo you say there's a lot of building is that is that part of the uh, the downtown area the outskirts of the city and maybe the role of the operating engineers and all that can you speak to that
3: yeah it is more of the downtown area and you know the suburbs are expanding and they're just the, the cities are growing they have really low uh, Really low taxes in North Dakota and in South Dakota, and that creates you know problems for them in terms of public services, which you know their, their schools and other things right. uh, aren't, don't don't perform as well as as Minnesota and other places that invest more in those things. But you know that does attract uh, people to live there, and and there's they've made investments in tech corridors and other things that are businesses are are locating there. Uh, Amazon's building you know, big warehouses out in South Dakota. And there's just, there's a lot going on. And that means, you know, when you're building things, you need cranes and you need bulldozers and you need the things that we do. So, uh, and then, you know, following that there's infrastructure. Um, There's a Mm -hmm. a lot more of that that becomes needed once people move there. So um, there's, there's just an opportunity for us to, um, you know, show that what we can do and the kind of skilled workers that we provide and, Honestly, what's a game changer for the Dakotas and something they've never had because they haven't had a lot of unions out there is training. Um, you know, that's that's the separator for us in a lot of cases like this. In a non-union environment, is the kind of training that we can provide and offer contractors and workers uh, in this area is, is what we're hoping separates us and gets us to a point where you know these contractors and these workers will start. Uh, making the the right decision.
1: Jason, when you talk about training, what comes to mind, obviously, is the apprenticeship programs. And we just uh, celebrated National Apprenticeship Week a couple of weeks ago. I'm just wondering how we did with that. Maybe, uh, maybe Local 49 was out and about trying to get more operating engineers. It sounds like, uh, you know, you mentioned that you're growing 14,600 strong right now. Um, can you get into your apprenticeship program and talk about how extensive they are, and maybe be specific on on that training, because you cover so much. I was reading earlier, my gosh, Uh, oil, natural gas, pipeline construction, mining, iron ore, which is a big up in that area, asphalt, concrete, wind, solar, coal, nuclear. I mean, you you cover just about everything that makes America strong. So talk to me about your apprenticeship program.
3: Yeah, we do cover everything. Any any piece of infrastructure that's built um, in our area, uh, our members do the work uh, as anything. Um, Liz, you 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 rattled off most of them, and there's there's even more. So, um, the apprenticeship uh, covers all of that. Uh, we have training in every industry, uh, including you know we just in the last few years we've added training in natural gas distribution. It's small pipe, natural gas work, uh, drilling, and all that stuff. Uh, we we train on every, every for every industry and every piece of equipment. Um, you know, some of the things that I'm excited about, uh, in the future and things that are helping us grow and that'll help us grow in the Dakotas, uh, one thing in particular that we celebrated last week was our We call it our pathways program. We created a, a program for high school kids in the state of Minnesota, and then we expanded it to the kids in the state of North Dakota. And we're going to expand it to South Dakota where any, any kid any, in a public school, can take an operating engineer's classes for their elected uh, classes. And it's an online program, there's four modules. So these kids are, and the curriculum's created by the operating engineers, um, they're international. And we hire the instructors, uh, so they're people that understand our program. And these kids get exposed to the basics of equipment operation in these online classes um, for a couple years in high school, and then they get them ready to come right into our apprenticeship program from there. And we have 200 kids in it in Minnesota already, and we've only been doing it for uh, I think this is the third semester. Um, so we've seen rapid growth of it, and then we do uh, we we, you know, we do events with the kids too, where we'll we'll partner with a contractor of ours. We've done it with a few already, and then we'll we'll have them out at Hinckley. And we have events where they can come operate the real thing, uh, and then we invite their parents too. Mm-hmm. so we get a whole ton of people uh, at our facility or at one of our contractors' facility for these events, and they get you know to, they've been you know seeing it online and hearing about it, reading about it, studying it, and then they get to come see it and touch it and We've already had um, people graduate last yeah, this this past year. Um, kids graduate and get right into our apprenticeship program there and they work this summer. So I'm excited about that. That's the, the typically the trades would show up at a trade, you know, at a high school uh, career day with a table. You know, here's some brochures. That's that's just not getting it done, and that wasn't getting it done. So. Mm-hmm. this is a real opportunity for kids to learn about the craft and learn about being an operating engineer and have it directly lead to the apprenticeship program uh, and, and learn about the union, too, yeah. we create these classes. so uh, and, and then I'm so excited about North Dakota. We just expanded it there. There's 40 kids in it uh, right now taking these classes in North Dakota, and that's going to be a game-changer for us as we grow that.
1: I saw a story on this recently, and uh, it's being run by the Minnesota Virtual Academy. Now is maybe you could give us some details on this virtual academy. This sounds pretty fascinating. Did they approach you on this uh, on this idea and I guess it's a two-part question here. When the students go through that, does that shave a little time off the the traditional apprenticeship program since they kind of got a jump start on everything?
3: Yeah, so the we started it. You know, I I give credit to my brothers and sisters in Wisconsin at uh, IUOE Local 139. They started this uh, maybe six, seven years ago, uh, maybe a little longer, and had this idea, and they created it, and they, they worked with the international to create the curriculum. And I went to a conference, which is the value of some of the conferences and we all get together in the North, North Central States Conference, Midwest Operating Engineers. And I, I heard about this, and, and I was like, we have to do this. This is... This is really smart. This is the this is the future. This is how we're going to reach kids, get them into our trade. So um, this is fully created by by us. And you know, I'm I'm not ashamed. I told my my brother Terry McGowan, the business manager, there. I'm not, I'm not ashamed to steal a good idea. And, <laughs> exactly. And uh, and I did. And um, and we ran with it here. So the virtual academy is is who we chose to partner with here. They're really a charter school. Um, and that's technically, when the kids take the classes, they enroll in that school here in Minnesota and um, and take the classes through them. Uh, so we needed a partner, and that's who we chose. Uh, but we are in full control of of the program and the curriculum and the the teaching and all of it so and then um the second part of your question was yes the you asked whether they get a fast track and they do. so they get we have classroom uh, requirements for apprentices. Uh, 144 classroom hours, I think it is. I right, mean, I think it should, just might have went up to 168. But they are required to take classroom hours as part of their apprenticeship, and the the, the stuff they do in high school translates. So they do get fast tracked. They get to bypass some of that, and they also get. We partner with a technical college, a couple of them here in the in the Twin Cities, and we're partnering with more in the future where they get college. If they want to go that route, they get college credits. Mm-hmm. Um, if they want to go to construction management or something like that. So, yeah, it, there's, there's definitely an advantage for them to take these classes. And then, you know, those events that we have, we make direct connections for them with employers, with our union employers. So definitely a leg up for these kids that are taking these high school classes with us.
1: Now, is this uh, seniors or are juniors involved in this in the high schools in
3: that area? Both. They can start taking them when they're, when they're junior year and then, uh, they, they finish the module uh, in their senior year, and, and then they graduate. And ideally, they get employed and come to us. That's we awesome. help them get employed too.
1: So, Jason, with the success of this program, have other unions said, "Hey, I like what Local 49 is doing here. I, I got to try that." Has anybody knocked on your door yet
3: regarding this? Not yet. Um, I think you know some of them are still stuck in the in the rut of you know career days and just kind of doing same old, same old. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, the Carpenters Union here is somebody we, we partner with quite a bit and they do something similar, a little different. They actually have curriculum that they've been, I think they actually, uh, uh, sell it to school districts, uh, but it's their curriculum, you know, and it's taught in, in, you know, whatever schools they can get to go along with this. Um, and they, they do have it in some schools in, in Minnesota. So they, they've kind of done something similar not, but, uh, not as nearly as that's that model dependent on school districts and school boards to actually, you know, implement it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What I like about ours is uh, even if the school doesn't want them to take these classes, they're available to every kid. So if you get the parents bought into this and they want their kid to take this class or the kid wants to school, can't do anything about it. Um, Um, They can just enroll and take the class. They don't, you know, there's no gatekeeper. Which is what I liked about it. We can, redirect direct market this to kids and parents. And we haven't even really hit the gas on that yet. So I, I think when we really put some money in some smart, you know, hire some smart people to do direct advertising to parents and kids, I think we're going to see enrollment jump even more. That's awesome.
1: What a great idea. Jason George joining us on our live line today. Jason is the business manager of Local 49 of the International Union of Operating Engineers out of Minnesota, North and South Dakota. 14,600 strong and growing. Greg Regan will be joining us later in the show on behalf of the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO. Back in a few minutes.
0: You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed
2: Flash Ferrens. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy.
1: FGE.org. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. Buildings,
0: bridges, skyscrapers, and more. Structures that are the face of our cities and towns were built by members of the Ironworkers Union. That's why it's important that our workforce of over 130,000 ironworkers continues to be the safest and best trained in the field. With 154 training centers, we invest over $90 million annually in safety and training. We're growing the next generation of union ironworkers. There are so many reasons to put your trust in our ironworkers and their employers. Learn more about us at ironworkers.org. Now, back to America's workforce. Here's Ed Flash Farrans.
1: And don't forget, you can check us out on at least six platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, And Stitcher, and when you get an opportunity, here's what you do. Just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so keep them coming. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers. You can find more at oh.aft.org. Let's go back to St. Paul, Minnesota, rejoin Jason George. Jason is the business manager, also serves as a financial secretary of the operating engineer's Local 49 And uh, that covers Minnesota, North, and South Dakota website, local49.org. Jason, uh, that was a great story, what you said about uh, what you're doing to attract young people into the trades. And what's interesting, too, is your story. And I'm sure you've shared this story with a lot of people because uh, you came. You came from the school of hard knocks. I was reading earlier about you being raised by a single mom in the St. Paul area. Your mom had to work two jobs, struggle to keep the finances going. I mean, one missed paycheck, one flat tire. That could be a game changer. And then I guess your uncle kind of got you involved with with the union way of life. Your uncle was president of the Amalgamated Transit Union. That would be local 1005 in Minnesota. I was just wondering if you would be so kind to reflect back on your life, because I bring this up for a very good reason. We talked to so many people like yourself that encourage young people to get involved in the trades. Why? Because it's a pathway to the middle class. It's a pathway to the middle class. And obviously you found that at a a very early age. Can you reflect back on that time? And and Jason, I'm sure you shared that story with a lot of young people, and I'm sure it resonated. Can you speak to that?
3: Yeah, it's been a long road uh, (laughs) from where I started out to here. And, uh, there are a lot of ups and downs in it. Uh, and yeah, a couple, uh, heroes of mine, you mentioned, you know, kind of role models uh, for me. Um, number one was my mom who, uh, uh, dad is not in my life uh, from an early age. And, uh, she, it was just her and I, um, you know, family wasn't really around either. So it was really just my mom and I against the world at that point, um, 11, 12 years old. So, Watching her struggle with that, and you know, dodging the calls from bills collectors, and going over the family budget with her at an early age, and you know, having to fend for myself a lot uh, because she was busy uh, Mm -hmm. working, and um, and then I, you know, so just the the first thing that I noticed and learned was about hard work, and and how important that is, and and to fight. And to work hard, and and that's how you survive. So that that was lesson number one, um, you know. And, and lesson number two was, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, uh, you know, loyalty. Uh, she she never left. She stayed. She stuck it out. And uh, so that was a big one for me, you know, just observing that and obviously appreciating that from her. And then you know on on the the other side of things, I saw the value of a job. And how much it meant, you know, like if she lost her job, I intuitively knew at a young age that we were in trouble. Yeah. (laughs) We were in big trouble. Um, Probably going to end up on the street. So, you know, the value of a good paying, you know, she was lucky enough to work for a corporation that still was a classic corporation when they used to do uh, really good things. You know, not not that they don't anymore, but when they took care of people. Yeah, Um, She worked for 3M. Uh, which is a big corporation that started here in Minnesota. Um, and she was one who started as a, uh, I think she started as a secretary when she was 18 years old and was able, you know, she survived division clothes. She just, she did so many different things within that company. Um, she had, she's still, she's retired now. She has a pension from that company, which is unheard of anymore. And they right. stopped doing that, <laughs> you know, 20 years ago, But she was one of the last ones to get one. Um, and I, I saw the value of that and then, you know, at different points she had to pick up other jobs because as she was working her way up through the ladder, she wasn't making too much money. But, um, so I saw the value of that, of, of a job and what it can do for somebody and, and the lifeline that it was. And that's what got me interested in the union stuff. Um, when I, you know, came, grew up, you know, um, you know, was in trouble, you know, <laughs> a little bit and kind of an angry kid and just, you know, dealing with all that and, uh, learned some life lessons along the way myself, uh, did things the hard way. As I tell my kids, don't do things like I did them. I just made life 10 times harder for myself right? <laughs> and this is unnecessary. But, um, you know, after I got through all that and started, uh, and made my way, you know, I, I did drop out of high school, but I got a GED thankfully and, um, kind of cleaned up my act in the late, late teens, really early 20s, somehow found my way to college and then, you know, started figuring out what I wanted to do. And, you know, I did have one one family member in my life was my uncle, the second kind of hero of mine. And um, he was a mechanic for the bus drivers union, the ATU, like you said, Amalgamated Transit Union here. And he worked his way up through the union to be the president of the union. And, you know, the whole way, even before he was president, Whenever I would see him, he was always doing union stuff and talking to me about it. Um, they had a big strike here that he led when he was president. And, you know, I was you know just watching him go through that. And he was telling me all about it. Um, and he started talking to me about, hey, if, you know, w- once I kind of got through my troubles and figured out, yeah, hey, I want to make make a difference. Like, I want to try to help kids that grew up like I did, you know, figure out a way to to make it through it like I did. And he said the one of the best, he's, you know, he told me one of the best ways to do that, where you can make a real difference is in the union moment. And so that's, that's what led me to this with him. Um, so that's kind of a little bit how I got here. Um, different paths for sure. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of, uh, a lot of my uh, members, you know, their, their dad was in it or their uncle, you know, was a, was a crane operator. You know, they kind of got, they grew up on a farm. You know, I, not very many, uh, at all, come from my background. You know, kind of inner city, a um, little bit different life. So, mm-hmm. uh, but I would I would tell anybody, and I have talked to kids about this. You know, I, I've talked to a few high schools in St. Paul. To try to do that and find opportunities to do talk to the kids that grew up or growing up just like I did. Um, the best, you know, I've I've been to college, I've done all that. The best education I ever got was was life stuff that that separated me when I got to college from the kids there that I had sort of what I like to call it I had street smarts and book smarts. If there you there have you them both, it's a it's a big advantage in life. So I I, I wouldn't change anything. Well, I'd change some things, <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, but those experiences made me who I am, and those life lessons have been invaluable for me in my career. Oh, yeah. Yeah,
1: you'll never forget those. Never, never. How how many years now with the operating engineers for you, Jason?
3: Uh, since two thousand eight, so fourteen, I think. Mm-hmm. And
1: how long have you been business manager, financial secretary?
3: Since two thousand and eighteen, been uh, okay. elected in two thousand eighteen and reelected in two thousand twenty one. So I'm in my fourth. Just completed my fourth year.
1: Well, I'll tell you, there's a lot of Jason Georges out there with uh, similar backgrounds in life. And that's why I brought this, uh, this whole thing about the pathway to the middle class, because there's so many young people, they think college is going to be the, uh, the saving grace for them. And they often come out of college with just a lot of debt and no, no job, no career. And uh, they're, they're trying to figure out what they're going to do next. So it's important that that story is out there. So people can relate to that and get involved, because right now there's a lot of opportunity in the United States of America when it comes to uh, the work that you're doing and what unions are doing right now. I mean, we just scratched the surface here, Jason. I I mean, I have to bring you back here because we're running out of time. I know one of the big issues right now is uh, mining in that area. I know Minnesota is big on that. We need uh, we need those uh, precious metals to put into the chips to run our computers and run our cars so there's so many opportunities out there you're in the middle of it we didn't even touch on solar and wind so let's uh let's talk about that in the new year how does that sound my brother yep okay i'm gonna let you go sounds like you got a lot of work to do i'm gonna let you get back to organizing especially north and south dakota it's good that you you work on both sides of the fence we need that keep doing what you're doing keep telling your story and you have a wonderful holiday okay my brother
3: You too. We'll talk to you soon. I appreciate the opportunity. Be well. Anytime.
1: Local49.org, the website. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Greg Regan will be joining us on behalf of the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO. This
0: is America's Workforce.
2: It takes Lyuna to keep America running. Org.
0: There is unity and strength for workers.
2: We are the USW. We are the
0: USW. The, the United, United steel Steelworkers. Workers. The largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the US, US Canada, Canada, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are Steelworkers. Standing strong and fighting for what's right.
1: The Heat and Frost Insulators and Allied Workers are proud to be a title sponsor for America's Workforce Radio. The Insulators Union is leading the way in the mechanical insulation industry, fire stopping, and infectious disease control. Regarded as North America's energy conservation specialist, these professionals are known for their professional work and dedication. You can learn more about the Insulators Union at insulators.org.
4: Hi, this is Liz Schuler, president of the AFL-CIO, and I am a huge fan of Flash and America's Workforce radio and podcast.
2: America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at BoydWatterson.com.
0: To Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce.
1: And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. Let's go to Washington, D.C. right now. Welcome one of our regulars, longtime contributor to America's Workforce. That would be the Transportation Trades Department, which is currently headed by Mr. Greg Regan. TTD.org is their website. Greg's here to talk about their legislative agenda for next year. But first and foremost... A lot of people wondering, is there going to be a rail strike? And I'm hearing all kind of dates being shuffled around here, but uh, time will tell. Mr. Regan, welcome back to the show. And uh, I, I I know you don't have a, a complete answer on that, but you're in the middle of it all. So what, what can you share with our listeners right now regarding that?
4: Sure. Well, thanks for having me, Flash. And, you know, this is. Obviously, we're we're in a, we're in crunch time here when it comes to the to the freight rail negotiations. Um, all of the four unions who have failed to ratify have lined up their, you know, their what's called the cooling off date. So, um, you know, we have until December ninth now to reach a resolution. And, you know, if if a resolution isn't reached before then between the parties, then it very well could end up in in Congress's hands.
1: And if it goes to Congress's hands, what happens then?
4: Well, look, I, I know that there um, there are plenty of people who would like to see Congress uh, go above the tentative agreements. Um, I think that, you know, by, by putting in, for instance, uh, additional sick leave or something of, of that nature, um, you know, I, I do think we have to be somewhat realistic, though. This is a, uh, it's a 50-50 split in the Senate. Anything that passes needs to be, needs to have 60 votes. Um, I I think the most likely outcome, if Congress had to act, would be uh, to impose the tentative agreements, the terms that were reached between the parties. Uh, Obviously, that would not be satisfying to a significant portion of the membership because, obviously, a bunch of people voted it down. Um, Mm -hmm. But this is the way the, the, the Railway Labor Act works, and I think it really just highlights more than anything. It highlights the fundamental you know, business problems the problems with the business practices that the railroads are, are engaged in, and, and the environment they've created.
1: Yeah. Well, Greg, you know the big issue here is the, the overworked employees, the fact that if they take a day off, they're in trouble. And I was reading about this uh, idea of an annual stress test because the workers are stressed. There's no, there's no doubt about that. And I see that uh, your uh, your organization, the Transportation and Trades Department is proposing to congress that they require like an annual stress test um, can you speak to that and 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 uh, does this does this idea have any legs what's the story there
4: uh i think it i think it should have legs uh looking at what impacts the railroads have had in our economy on inflation on the supply chain crisis that we had a couple uh, you know a year and a half ago which has not Fundamentally been solved. Um, all of the problems we're seeing in freight rail go back to this uh, to the understaffed under overworked workforce they have right now. Um, if you look at all of the issues that were at at the core of of why workers voted down some of these contracts, uh, most of them are quality life issues. It's not about wages and and, and benefits necessarily. It's about, uh, you know, having access to your to your leave that you, you've been granted in your contract. It's about uh, these draconian work rules, which are designed to keep people working no matter what. All of this stuff goes back to the fact that they laid off a third of their workforce over the last, you know, they being the railroads, a third of their workforce over the last seven years. And you know, that that is at the core of all of these problems. It's the core of the service issues. It's the core of the morale issues. It's the core of all the work rule issues. And we need to figure out a way as a government how to make sure, the, you know, how to compel the railroads to actually start behaving in a more responsible and more um, humane way towards their employees. So if we can actually look at uh, some sort of enforceable mechanism that ensures that the railroads are actually fast to a level that is necessary, then that will start to address a lot of these issues, uh, both for our economy and for the workers.
1: Now, Greg, you mentioned the thirty percent reduction in their workforce, and, and I know they lost a lot of people, especially during the pandemic. Um, is anybody addressing that? Are they, are they hiring? I mean, where do we stand with that right now? Or are they they don't want to they don't want to hire? What, what's what's going on?
4: Well, they claim they're trying to hire, and they're having difficulty. And they you know they like to claim to the you know the tight labor market that everyone's having difficulty hiring. Um, you know, I I I find it just really absurd when they when they try to complain about inability to hire people and how I thought it's just tough to find workers these days. Well, you've you've furloughed a whole bunch of people at the beginning of the pandemic.
2: Um,
4: And you've created an environment over the last several years that's been so bad that when you tried to bring a lot of these workers back, um, more significant portion of them said, no, thanks. You know, we we had to feed our families. So we went and found other jobs. And it turns out that these other jobs don't expect expect us to be on call 24 seven. Um, so I, if they really want to start addressing their, you know, quote, unquote, worker shortage, they're going to have to start addressing some of these fundamental problems. And they're going to have to start treating their workers in a more uh, reasonable way, because right now, um, you know, even if you re- they recruit people, a lot of them aren't getting through training because they're looking at what the lifestyle is and what the work rules are and saying, this isn't for me.
1: I hear you. Yeah. Why bother with it? All right. Yeah. Let's focus on the uh, the agenda, legislative agenda for next year, and it's uh, I mean it's pretty simple: wage increases, benefits, domestic manufacturing, made in the USA. I mean, can you touch on some of this? And this is a two part question here. We got a little change happening in Washington. We're uh, we we're, we have a, a Republican controlled House. The Senate still Democratic. Talk to me about your agenda and how you see it happening with uh, with the changes in place, Greg.
4: Sure. Well, a lot of a lot of it, I think, there's a broader theme um, about what we're looking for moving forward. A lot of it is about taking <clears throat> leveraging the money that is going to be going out the door uh, with the infrastructure law, with the Inflation Reduction Act, um, and making sure that we are applying the most stringent labor protections, the most stringent by American protections to all of that money, so that we are going to realize the full economic benefit of, of all of this really good federal spending. Um, you know, and, and what that means to me, the full economic benefit to me means more good union jobs so that this money is not going out the door and actually subsidizing, you know, foreign manufacturers or subsidizing or, or going to low, low road, um, you know, labor models, whether it be in construction or whether it be in operations, uh, so that we have more and more people going to low wage, low benefit jobs. All of this money needs to go towards growing our economic base, providing more pathways to the middle class, providing more union jobs for individuals in this country, uh, and ensuring that that there is there is growth all around, and that everybody is going to benefit from the spending. In addition to, of course, having modern, newer transportation networks in this country.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know the Biden administration had when they these policies and they, they were just astronomical here as far as what they were able to accomplish in the first couple of years. I'm um, with the uh, going back to saving our pensions to the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS Act and uh, obviously infrastructure to what you're talking about here. Now, I, I know the administration kind of mandated like prevailing wages. You know, they're they, they were definitely pushing to the unions and all that. Can that be Changed now, because of the change in the House leadership, can they alter those uh, those work rules that we're, that we're talking about here
4: well let's look at I mean first of all, we have the backstop of the any changes would need to be done uh, with both chambers of Congress approving it, and we are going to always have this backstop at least for the next two years in the Senate. Uh, but more importantly, if you look at the margin in the house we're, right now it's projected to be like a four seat margin. Um, four, four seat Republican majority, and as much as Democrats are where most of our support comes from, we also are pretty good as a labor movement about uh, establishing some relationships with Republicans. And certainly, I can count to you know probably close to ten that we could get to block you know things like uh, any uh, gutting of labor standards of of, of by America or Davis Bacon or of thirteen C and other. Other core labor protections. Um, you know, I think we have an ability to reach across the aisle and explain to people how this benefits their district. And we have a number of Republicans, including people like uh, like Brian Fitzpatrick in, in Pennsylvania or Don Bacon in, in Nebraska, who have been vocal about their support of, of unions and vocal about why they why they vote the way they do. That that, that it actually benefits their their constituents, their communities. And, you know, it's up to us right now to grow that base in the Republican Party and make sure they understand uh, how we're not here to, to, to hurt them or their communities. On the contrary, uh, when we're stronger, their communities are stronger. And I think mm-hmm. that we have an opportunity to really show that we, that, that we can, you know, make partnerships and make allies in every part of the federal government.
1: Makes a lot of sense to me. Got to work on both sides of the aisle because that's exactly what the American people want. They want progress in America. They don't want to go backwards. Greg Regan, president of the Transportation Trades Department of the AFL-CIO. For more, go to ttd.org. That'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Tomorrow, we'll talk about unions and offshore wind and the operating engineers in the state of Nebraska. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day.
0: That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find
2: out more information online at labortools.com.